This is IISE's Michael Hughes. Are you ready to take your career to the next level? Earning a master's in engineering management from the University of Louisville can strengthen your leadership skills and open new career opportunities in just 10 courses. In UofL's fully online program, you can take just one course at a time and complete the coursework whenever it's most convenient to you, making it easy to balance life and education. All you need is a bachelor's in the STEM field. No GRE required. Engineer the future. Get signed up today at louisville.edu slash online. Hey, everybody. This is David Brandt, IISE's web managing editor and a producer on Problem Solved. You're about to hear the season one finale of our podcast, and we want to thank you for listening and contributing to the growth of Problem Solved, which made its debut in May of 2019. In our first year alone, we've aired 20 full episodes, as well as several bonus conference interviews. We also gained listeners in more than 80 countries. We'll be recording new episodes in the next few months for Season 2, which we plan to launch later this summer. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes of Problem Solved at podcast.iise.org or on any popular podcast app such as Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcast. And you can continue your education and training in industrial and systems engineering by visiting the IISE website at www.iise.org. And now, the season finale of Problem Solved. This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Hello, welcome to Problem Solved. I'm Keith Albertson, Managing Editor at IISE. Our guest today is Natalie Scala. She's a tenured associate professor and director of the graduate programs in supply chain in the College of Business and Economics at Towson University in Towson, Maryland. Her primary research is in decision analysis, and she provides consulting services with experience working with government clients and in the electric utility industry. She's been involved with projects involving Army unit readiness, naval sea bases, cybersecurity metrics, and risk and voting systems. And that includes work with election officials in her state of Maryland to help secure elections there. She has a new book out, Handbook of Military and Defense Operations Research, published by CRC Press. She's also an ISC member. Natalie, welcome to Problem Solved. Great to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Before we uh, launch into the topics, I'd uh, always like to ask everybody just a little on that background and how they got started on this career path. How did you become interested in being an industrial engineering career and focus in particular on, on your expertise in data and decision analysis? Yeah, so I was a math major in undergraduate. So I went to John Carroll University, which is in Cleveland. Greater Cleveland. And John Carroll was great. It was a smaller campus. We had really involved faculty. And they were very interested in our, you know, investing in us and making sure that we had strong careers. So by the time I got to senior year, I took a class called operations research and I loved it. So most of the stuff that I took in undergrad was theoretical math, um, complex analysis, fractal geometry, things like that. And it was great. But when I saw OR, I was really, really interested. And now it's senior year of undergrad. So I started looking at graduate programs in OR and they're scattered. I didn't realize that at the time that sometimes they're in math departments, sometimes business schools, sometimes engineering schools. So I did work for about a year after undergraduate. And I started applying for different schools for OR. I was accepted at the University of Pittsburgh in the PhD program, and that was an industrial engineering program, and here we are. 
And then in terms of my actual research, um, I was involved. So the year I worked between undergraduate and graduate school, I worked for an electric utility company and I ended up doing my dissertation research on spare parts analysis and especially spare parts for nuclear power plants. So my experience there at the utility and the knowledge that I gained in that year was really invaluable in my dissertation research. And the more I started doing work and building inventory models, the more I realized that a human element or a human component and that knowledge of the people that you're building the model for, the people who are actually going to be implementing this solution is so important. Because if you, you can build the most you know, innovative operations research model, it saves the company $10 million. But if nobody understands how to use it, it's just going to sit there and it's not going to get implemented. So that's what I like about decision analysis so much. And that aspect of industrial engineering is making sure that the solutions that we create actually fit within the context of the organization um, is that a continuous improvement idea. I can't go from step one to step 10 overnight, but I can take small steps to get there, that continuous improvement idea. So those kinds of concepts, and I like working with people, I'm kind of extroverted. So that was really one of the reasons why I wanted to go into more of a decision analysis phase or feel to my research as well. Now, cybersecurity obviously is a key concern in just about every aspect of business and life right now. How did you first begin involvement in doing research in that area? So I had some experience after I graduated with my PhD in the U.S. government. So I was a Department of Defense civilian employee for a little bit before I transitioned back into academia. So, you know, in the DOD environment, and also I did an internship at RAND Corporation when I was a graduate student. So seeing those military type aspects or being exposed to government type research. And then with RAND, I was working on Project Air Force um, to get an understanding of what was happening, it was more and more clear that cybersecurity was, you know, at that time, 10 years ago, it was one of the more forefront research areas starting to emerge. So I was introduced to some of the science and security team at the National Security Agency. Science and security does a lot of work with academics and with various universities in developing research in cybersecurity and policy models and things like that. So getting exposure to that work and collaborating with some professionals at the University of Maryland College Park, as well as other universities, kind of exposed me more to this idea of how we can use it. You know, cybersecurity research, a lot of the models that are, you know, funded and developed are really made by computer scientists, network analysis, things like that. And that's all great, right? Cybersecurity is a computer driven thing. We need really strong computer scientists. But one of the things we realized or the things that I realized by looking at this research is that there's really a missing component of risk. We don't see a lot of models and we don't see a lot of analysis in cybersecurity where IEs can step in and look at what are potential elements of risk or continuous improvement ideas. Or like I said a little bit earlier, how does the model actually fit within the organization? and their goals and their needs. So that's the kind of approach that I like to bring to the research that I do in this area. How do we make it customized for the company? How does the organization choose what actions they need to take? How much, you know, how much risk do they need to take on? Where do they want their risk in their process? And computer scientists are great at coming up with algorithms and metrics and things like that. But this human component also needs to be considered and this organizational component as well. 
Yeah, and that's very easy to see how you apply all your ISE tools into um, sort of anticipating those threats. Now, we're in the middle of an election year, which is uh, kind of coming up on us. And one of the things that you have been working on that we actually discussed in a um, Q&A interview with you in the magazine last mm-hmm. year was the work you've done in Maryland to help uh, election officials there deal with various types of threats. Tell us a little bit about what you did there and what some of the uh, solutions and threats were that election officials are facing? Yeah, so we've been working with the state of Maryland, a few counties in Maryland for about three years now, since about 2017. And the project started by taking a look at you know, what are potential threats or vulnerabilities in the Maryland election process? So Maryland uses optical scanners for voting. So what that means is that when the public comes into a polling place or early voting, they fill out bubbles, which looks like kind of like a glorified Scantron card. The names of the candidates or the issues are all listed on the ballot. They fill in the little circles and then they run it through a big scanner at the end. That counts the votes. And then there's the paper trail. So if, you know, in a horrible worst case scenario, something went wrong with the electronic count, there is still that paper ballot that could be hand counted. So every process has risk, right? Every process has some sort of threat to it. And the Maryland process in the state of Maryland has done a really good job in trying to make sure that the cybersecurity or the cyber online component at a polling place is minimized. But there still could potentially be issues. So what we were looking at is where those issues could potentially be. And the more we looked at it, the more we realized that there are three levels of potential threat. Yes, there's cyber threats. The online calculation could be mishandled somehow, hacked or just, you know, a break in the connection or something, right? There could be some sort of online issue. There's also a physical threat. Maybe the equipment is set up the night before at a polling place and that how somehow that equipment is compromised overnight before the actual election starts. And then there's also a insider threat. So that is the human element. And that is also one of the five pieces of cybersecurity that Science and Security looks at at NSA, too, this idea of the human. And the human is really hard to control. You know, we can build algorithms. We can do things to eliminate cyber threat. We can lock doors and and put tamper tape on equipment to identify potential physical threats, you know, if they would happen. But the human threat is an issue. And humans, you know, for the most part, mean well. They want to do the right thing, but they also make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes introduce threat into the process, whether they want to and, you know, it's just an honest mistake or sometimes humans could be there to be adversarial, right? They're there to cause harm as well. Mm-hmm. So we kind of looked at a three-pronged threat. And in, in my understanding, we're the first to do that in elections research, to look at it at a three-pronged kind of potential threat, cyber, physical, and insider. And when we were, were able to sit down with the state in that way, we were able to map out what could potentially go wrong. Now, we have no evidence that any of that went wrong in 2016, but we obviously don't want it to go wrong in 2020. So we, it was an idea of mapping out where these risks could potentially be, What kind of mitigations need to be in place to make sure this doesn't happen? And then how can we train or how can we involve poll workers or election judges to be more involved in the process as well? Yeah. And you mentioned the one aspect of that was election judges. What is the problem and the solution there in getting them involved in in helping secure elections? And how did you approach that? Yeah. So election judges are the first line of defense, right? And the public's 
perception of a voting process or the voting's you know experience is their experience at the polling place right so you know how i feel about a, a retailer so i'm i'm just going to pick on macy's for a second how i feel about macy's is dependent on my experience at the store so I'm in Maryland and there's two Macy's by me. There's Columbia Mall, there's Towson Town Center. Both of them are excellent in there. Clean, bright, you know, no piled clothes in the changing rooms, anything like that. So I feel really great about Macy's as a brand. But if I would walk into another store, maybe in another mall, and it was dingy and dirty and tossed, I would not feel great about the brand. And it's the same kind of thing with polling places. You know, we need the public to come into a polling place, have a positive experience and have that security and that warm, fuzzy feeling, if you will, that their vote is secure, right? There's the actual physical cyber insider security part that we have to look at, but we also need that public confidence in the polling process. So election judges are your first line of defense and they are the experience that the public has at the polling place. So you want, we want election judges. So Maryland calls them election judges. Other states call them poll workers. We want our poll workers obviously to not make mistakes in the process, which, you know, whether those are intentional or not, they might introduce risk. And we want our poll workers to be also aware of Hmm, you know, what if I see equipment misfunctioning or what if I see things that could potentially indicate something is happening? You know, that whole see something, say something kind of thing. So we want poll workers to understand what are potential cyber, physical and insider threats that could emerge. And what should you do as a poll worker if you see that happening? Can you fix it yourself? Or should you call for help? Who do you call? How do we make sure that a potential problem that might emerge at a polling place does not become a real problem, that we stop it before it becomes an issue? And it would seem that one of the great challenges too, you you worked with election officials in an area of one state, mm-hmm. but if you look across the country, there are any number of different ways of voting, different processes, and that has to make it a challenge to come up with solutions that can apply across a broad area, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. So Maryland does have a single process for the most part throughout the state. All counties are using the same equipment. The process itself might be slightly different in how polling, um, the public moves through the polling place and things like that, slightly different by county, but the equipment is standard. Other states, such as Pennsylvania, use uh, the counties are allowed to choose what equipment they want. So we see different types of equipment in different counties. So it is difficult to come up with a one size fits all solution in this process. Um, the threats can be somewhat similar and somewhat interchangeable, but different equipment have different vulnerabilities. And then the other thing too is, as a, you know, we have to think almost like an adversary. If we did a one size fits all solution and we had the whole country do this solution, which we can't, right? Because elections are state driven, so it's a state choice. But if we could make everybody say, you know, adopt some sort of practice. Well, the adversary only has to adapt then to that one change. And then once again, they're a step ahead of us. So sometimes actually having different types of equipment and a more patchwork system actually in a weird way makes it somewhat more secure, right? Because if you have one set of equipment and somehow it was compromised, then it's compromised across the state. Mm. But if you have different types of equipment, all different types would have to be compromised for the entire state to be compromised. So there are pluses and minuses in those types of setups, but it does cause somewhat of a challenge in coming up with overall threat models. 
this is Michael Hughes of IISE. Have you ever been part of an engineering project or team and wished you were calling the shots? The online master's in engineering management at the University of Louisville can expand your career opportunities and prepare you to take on leadership roles in just 10 courses. Classes cover topics like engineering operations, financial management, and more. All you need is a bachelor's in engineering or a related STEM field and the drive to take your career to the next level. Take charge of engineering projects and teams. Get started today at louisville.edu slash online. Some of the research that we're working on now is, you know, a framework for where is the risk and where does risk emerge? So Paul Gothels at the United States Military Academy is working with me on this and we're looking at you know, where do risks emerge at the polling place? Are they at the setup time the night before where you set up the equipment and you lock the door and you leave? Is it during voting when people are actually in the polling place or is it in this teardown part where everything is wrapped up, the votes are counted, the polling place is packed up? And threats change throughout the day. They emerge at different times, the level of threat as well. You know, maybe something is a high risk at some point in the process and then not so high later. So Paul and I are looking at a Markov chain model to understand how does that risk evolve over time and what can be the most risky pieces and how do we mitigate those throughout the cycle of a polling place. Once we have that framework in place, then different states, different counties can use their own data and use their own process kind of inputs to that model and identify what they need to do regardless of what type of equipment they have. Are you getting good response to when you're dealing with election officials and you also you're dealing with government officials? They have to be receptive to the solutions. Have you gotten good reaction from people you've been working with on that? The counties really want to do something and there's a lot of responsibility on counties and this is not just Maryland. We've talked with other states as well. There's a lot of responsibility on counties to, you know, run a seamless election that has no issues in it. And sometimes counties have a lot of resources and sometimes they don't, you know, depending on, you know, the size of the county, where it's located, you know, all these different kinds of things. So one of the things we did in Maryland was take a look at actually developing training for election judges. So the counties wanted to do something, they were kind of at a loss. So, you know, they could use the risk model to identify what types of activities they need to do, but we were also looking for something that we can do right now. And like I mentioned, the election judges are a pretty big component to this, right? They're the first line of defense. They're who the public, you know, the public experience with the polling process is with those election judges and those poll workers. So we've also developed training to teach election judges and have them become aware of those potential threats that may emerge and how to also mitigate those as well. That's what I think is hopefully make the biggest impact in 2020 because the modules are in place and multiple counties in Maryland have agreed to use them. So not only have we created this you know, experience for election judges. They can take this training online. They can learn about threat. They can understand it. But we've done a research study that preliminarily shows it's under journal review right now that election judges actually learn. Like we had them take a quiz. We had them a pre-quiz, interact with our module, take the same quiz again, score statistically significantly went up. So we know that election judges and poll workers learn by interacting with our training. So we believe that that's going to make a really strong impact in 2020 in Maryland. And we hope other states will also start to adopt this and use this in the general election. Right now in the primary cycle, 
Michael, Maryland counties are using it. And we're hoping to expand it by the general as well. Election research is just one of the aspects of decision analysis uh, analytics you've done. Also, military utilities, just from an ISE standpoint, how are the research kind of the interrelated? Are they different? How, how do you apply some of the same uh, principles to each of the different areas you've worked? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's always the human element, right? And it's always this idea of how does the model work for that organization? So different companies and different organizations I've worked with, sometimes you have leadership that's really excited about using a model. So I'll give an example. So in my work with the electric utility, we had to redesign a warehouse. So a typical IE problem, right? Facility layout, where does the stuff go in the warehouse? And they had a lot of things they had to store. And it got to the point that they had so much stuff in that warehouse that they actually were renting a second warehouse down the street. So they're driving back and forth all day to fill orders. And these are spare part orders. So it's attached to a plant. The plant needs parts. They have all the stuff in storage. Driving up and down the road all day to fill orders, to pick orders, walking all around this warehouse. The company leadership of the company, corporate, is upset because they're spending all this money on two warehouses. We have way too much stuff. But then if you talk to the employees at the plant, oh, no, 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 we need these things. This is a nuclear plant, you know, safety concerns, things like that. So this is, was part of my dissertation model. I could have just made an inventory model, did a traditional model, ABC level of inventory, made a model, be done, that kind of thing. But what really I thought made this model that we used beneficial for the company is that I spent an entire summer at that warehouse, working in that warehouse, working at that plant, interviewing people who work there. And the warehouse employees spend this time all day, every day, right? They know their product. They know what is their pains of their job, what's annoying to them, what's difficult for them. They know what works super well. So to be able to put those inputs in, get rid of things that are not working well for them, you know, 5S type things, the stuff you use most often, put closest to you. The stuff that is causing pain, get rid of it in the process. And then things that are also working really well, we don't want to get rid of that. We want to actually some way exploit that, make more things work really well. So that's what I like about actually using decision analysis and looking at these types of problems across different fields, right? So either electric utilities or elections or military operations, we need to figure out what works well, what doesn't, and then use continuous improvement opportunities and you continuous improvement advances to make those working well things better. And again, at the end of the day, those employees at the warehouse had to execute this new facility layout. They had to make a way to make it work. And what we were able to do that summer is get out of that extra warehouse, get rid of the stuff they didn't need, move things around and create a much better experience for the people who worked there as well as save corporate money. So you have two somewhat kind of, I wouldn't say competing interests, but two different sets of interests. And how do we satisfy both of them at the same time? And in, in referencing your book on military operations research, what are some of the logistic and strategic challenges that the military faces that these principles can help smooth out and solve? Yeah, so the military world is consistently evolving, right? And sometimes we are looking at conflict type scenarios and sometimes we're looking at more peacekeeping scenarios as well. How do we, you know, the classic military logistics problem, get product there and service it. And sometimes that product has to be shipped in peacetime, which is super easy, or sometimes it's shipped and managed in conflict. So when we looked at the naval sea basing problem, 
this was Navy ships and they have to have inventory on the ships, things that they need, but they don't have the luxury of say like target with aisles that you can walk up and down and find stuff for a traditional warehouse. You can walk up and down aisles. Literally it's like glorified closets on Navy ships, right? You open the door, everything's shoved in this closet and they have to find stuff. I mean, it's not really a closet, but you know, kind of way to, to kind of explain yeah. it. The size yeah. of one anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so operations research always has an answer for that. And really, IE has an answer for that beyond just OR. You know, how do we find stuff? And just plain old 5S models, plain old continuous improvement models, you know, or even human factors and ergonomics. You know, you want to be able to have the job be as simple and easy and as accessible as possible, but also be efficient at the same time. So the problem we were looking at in Naval Sea Basin is that things no longer got efficient. People would pull stuff out of this closet and then shove it all back in. And sometimes they didn't put it back together the way they took it out. So the next time they needed something, the, new, the item was even in a different place. They had to dig around even more, things like that. So in the book, we look at approaches and we looked at different ways to look at OR in a military concept. So things like workforce planning, military assessments, Stochastic system modeling, social networks are really important, especially in the intelligence community, simulation and things like that. But we also included concepts about soft skills, client relations. How do we work with people? Why, you know, there's a chapter called why won't they use our model? Like, why can we, how do we bridge that gap with our client? How do we make sure that the people we build the model for actually are going to implement it? And then we also have sections on applications or examples of using IE and OR concepts in military applications. How can we apply them? And then different perspectives or opinion, not opinion, but reflection papers on where is this field going? Where was the history of the field? And how do we incorporate things like data science into this environment? Yeah. And those kind of logistic challenges in the military would seem to be as old as armies themselves. I mean, from Hannibal crossing the Alps on forward. But today, with advanced technology, you mentioned uh, social uh, media, artificial intelligence. There's so many different aspects to it. How do those create both new opportunities and challenges for the military to be able to deal with these issues? Yeah. Data-driven models are great, right? Because you have the real-world data, you're able to dig through it and find those patterns and trends, right? And sometimes those patterns and trends are really, really obvious to us. And other times our models are going to give us insights that we didn't even expect. And to me, that's the exciting part where we see things that we didn't even expect that we weren't thinking of. And if we find ways to capitalize or exploit those patterns or understand what those patterns are and use them to our advantage, that's where we can get, you know, real competitive advantage in a retailing type business environment or a strategic advantage advantage in a military or defense type environment. So what we try to do in the book was incorporate chapters that also talk about, you know, modern data analytics for the military operational researcher is the title of one chapter. Ray Hill wrote that and he's at AFIT in Dayton, Ohio at Wright-Patterson. So you know, where is this field going and how can we use data to implement the models we already have? You know, traditional OR models, you know, linear optimization and stuff don't need that much data. But when we look at continuous improvement, 
We look at advantages. We looked at other types of IE type principles as well as OR principles. Having that set of data and having us be able to make stronger predictions into the future, data-driven predictions are obviously going to be of an advantage. Are all of these types of research something that's very helpful to military school students? Can they use the type of work in your book to be able to apply to their education? Yes. So the reason I did this book was when I graduated from Pitt, I started working at the Department of Defense as a civilian. And I had all this, you know, I had a PhD in industrial engineering, master's PhD in industrial engineering, undergrad in math, right? Had all this great theoretical, by the book knowledge, ready to work. Get into this environment and the military environment is a lot different than traditional OR models, right? Sometimes we don't care about things like cost. Um, we just try and make it happen no matter what, or we value other things differently. We have, there's different objectives in a traditional OR, IE type problem. So I had a lot to learn, right? I had to learn this new application area. I had all this great um, book knowledge and school knowledge and application knowledge from my dissertation, but I had to learn this new field. And there was an adjustment there, but I, I did it and I worked on it and I grew as a researcher. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book to help bridge this gap, right? If you come from an OR or IE background and you're walking into a new military defense environment, what do you need to know that you might not know from school? And then vice versa. If you're at a service academy or you're a military student or you served, for example, in the military for years and you're transitioning out of the military into a more traditional working role, like a civilian role, what do you need to know, right? How do you learn the more math aspects, right? Maybe you have all this military defense knowledge from your career or you're being trained that way at a service academy. And how do I now incorporate that math and incorporate those operations, research, and IE concepts into my new career or into my academic knowledge? So the, we're hoping that this book bridges those gaps. People from traditional civilian backgrounds going into military and defense environments and then vice versa. People with military and defense backgrounds transitioning into civilian OR and IE type roles. And as a kind of a final thought uh, before we close, we're coming up in June on Women in Engineering Day, something that we're going to be celebrating at IASC this year. You're a successful professor, public researcher. Thank you. As a <laughs> As a university <laughs> professor who's dealing with the next generation of engineers, um, do you see more young women getting involved in ISC fields? And, and what can we do to encourage, even at the younger levels, uh, more women and, and more diversity in these areas? Yeah. So when I was at Pitt, I would think the overall IE PhD student population might have been even more than 50% female at some points that I was there. Wow. Um, definitely in my classes and, you know, I teach in a business school, but it's still analytics. I teach analytics. Um, we definitely have a very nice gender and um, ethnicity background mix in our courses. That's one of the things I love about Towson University. There are so many students with so many different backgrounds and we're all coming together for the same reasons. And I think it's a great environment to be teaching in. For me, especially, I was very blessed that I didn't necessarily have a lot of gender-based 
issues throughout my career, right? There are a lot of really strong women who paved the way for me. And for that, I am grateful for those women. Um, I think every graduate student has a certain amount of adversity that they have to overcome, right? And sometimes there are going to be people in your career, whether that is gender-based or not, and hopefully is no longer gender-based, who try and hold you back for whatever reason, you know, petty academic stuff or just overcritical or whatever. And I think, you know, we have to remember as women and as men too, but definitely as women that we deserve to be here. And as graduate students, we deserve to be here. We deserve to have that equal shot. As undergraduates, we deserve to have the opportunities that we have as well. Um, if we spend more effort in bringing each other up and also to make sure that we invest in people, we have to be critical, We ha- but we can do that in a more positive way. I think that will really help. And I also think strong educational systems in high school and middle school in math will also help. I mean, the research shows that women tend to start dropping out in high school, middle school, things like that. Stronger math programs across genders, across ethnicities, I think will also help students have self-efficacy to believe that they can really do this and they can be successful. Absolutely. And we're more than happy to celebrate the successes, uh, especially of our members and and such as yourself in these fields. It's a great advocacy for ISE and for the organization to see how many women have been successful. And we appreciate your time. It's been a very interesting discussion. The book, again, is Handbook of Military and Defense Operations Research from CRC Press. Natalie, thank you for your time. We loved having you with us and we look forward to talking with you more in the future. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. This has been an episode of Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. If you like what you've heard, then please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you're an IISE member, you can participate in discussions about this and other episodes at connect.iise.org. If you're not a member yet, then you can learn all about the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers at our website, iise.org. Thanks for listening to our show. 